Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Uh, joining me this week is one of the great writers at ATQ, Adam Holland. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. Ready to uh, go over some baseball and some other stuff. Uh, yeah, let's start out talking about baseball. Um, the uh, baseball team season is not over, um, although at some point uh, during the Pac-12 tournament, I sort of felt like it was. Um, they uh, uh, Just to quickly recap where we're at, uh, the, this was the uh, inaugural Pac-12 tournament. It was a double elimination tournament, which meant you had to lose two games. It was setting up uh, pretty nicely for the Ducks, uh, a, a against Arizona teams that they had just finished beating. Uh, you know, they'd taken five games out of six in the last two regular season uh, series. Um, and that was supposed to set them up well to maybe even get a, a regional hosting uh, site for the NCAA tournament. That NCAA tournament uh, starts uh, this week uh, in a day or two. Um, we're recording on Wednesday night. Um, the, uh, but uh, they did not get a regional hosting site. They flamed right out of the tournament uh, against the Arizona schools. It was quite bizarre. Um, they uh, will be uh, opening uh, uh, their NCAA series against Michigan. Uh, the other two uh, schools in the regionals are Louisville, which is the host, and uh, Southeast Missouri State. Um, let's start out talking about uh, how the Pac-12 tournament uh, went. Uh, Adam, what did you see? Honestly, um, in the first game, I, I, they dug themselves an early hole, um, which unfortunately has been kind of common for them. Uh, they, mm. they tend to get themselves in these little ditches that they have to get themselves back out of. Uh, the encouraging thing to see was that they did dig themselves back out of it and briefly took the lead. Uh, but again, I think it comes down to a lot like what we were talking about in the last podcast and what you've continuously gone over which is the fact that they just that they don't have that closer, they don't have that ace that can uh, just keep teams from uh, putting up runs, and we saw that happen yet again. As soon as they, you know, were able to go back up, then uh, kind of Arizona just put it away by um, getting another home run. Uh, they, you know, scored some crucial runs down the stretch. Yeah, and, and I mean, it wasn't just the home run; it was that it was a three-run home run because they had, you know, let two guys get on base. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, again, like, you know, when you, when you see that kind of thing happening, uh, then it's, uh, it's usually kind of a recipe for disaster. Uh, I was hoping that they, they could at least kind of, uh, redeem themselves in the second game of the series. Um, but then again, uh, in, in that game, they just couldn't seem to muster a lot of offense. Um, yeah, the, 
that was sort of the strange thing was that the the first game against Arizona, even though they had just swept Arizona, um, it still kind of looked like, yeah, I'm familiar with this kind of performance out of the Ducks where like their batting was exactly what we're used to seeing. They, they sort of get in a hole and then they light it up against the reliever, uh, you know, scoring six runs. That's about right, you know, for the Ducks. Uh, um and just the, you know, the pitching couldn't close the deal, you know, like got behind early and then couldn't close the deal. So then I was like, well, all right, their consolation prizes, they play Arizona state, a team that they just beat for the first time ever in Tempe in a series, um, uh, in the state of Arizona, which is where they were playing, you know, this one. So I was like, well, all right, but at least they're going to beat, you know, Arizona state. That should be no problem. They're just like the, the seven or eight seed, you know, this should be easy. Uh, nope, they couldn't hit at all. Uh, what do no. you think that was about? Honestly, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to chalk it up to Arizona state's pitching. I know Arizona state doesn't have elite pitching, but, uh, that was just an offensive slump. Like I have really not seen from Oregon all season. Uh, they were, uh, Oh, for nine hitting with two outs and they were one for 13 when they had guys in, in scoring position. And yeah, if you're just going to, if you're going to uh, turn in that kind of performance offensively, it's going to be hard to beat anybody. I mean, I know that, you know, it's Arizona state. It, it's certainly something that seems winnable, but uh, honestly, they just they, they picked a bad, bad day to have what I saw as maybe their worst offensive performance of the season. I mean, they scored runs and they've been shut out in other games like but we've seen that in a couple of games, uh, yeah. you know, where just like, oh, boy, the bats are just ice cold today. Um, you know, it's not quite enough that I um, worry about it being a structural thing. You know, baseball always plays a long season. Even the best teams have games where they, you know, look like that, but, uh, boy, they can't afford to do any of those in regionals. Like, you know, Michigan and Louisville are both pretty good teams. Uh, uh, Michigan is coming off of a funny little scandal. Um, but, uh, I kind of don't think that's going to affect things much. Like there is no way you get past both of those teams. If your bats are ice cold. Cause I mean, that's the ducks trademark, you know, like it, it, they're one of the best hitting teams in the nation, except for the games where they don't hit very well, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Well, and, and then in this case, when you have some of, some of their, their normally best offensive weapons, you know, like Tanner Smith and Jacob Walsh, each getting one hit a piece for the entire game uh, with like one RBI between them. That's yeah. If you see that um, against any team, you're in trouble. I don't care who it is. Well, what do you think are the prospects for a turnaround in, in Louisville? Honestly, um, other than getting their offense going, I think uh, it really has to do with making sure that you capitalize with uh, with with on base um, players, uh, kind of one thing that you referred to many times was Oregon's um, tendency to leave guys stranded on the on the plays. Okay, so you can say like, "Oh, we need to pick up our offense." Well, you're producing offense if you're getting guys on base. Even you know what I mean. If it's if, if it's just via walks and whatever, the point is you're putting guys on base. So that's that, that doesn't seem to be as much of an issue as it does just finishing the job and bringing them in for runs. So I think if you're going to see success in the regionals, that's one thing you have to come through with. If you have guys in, in on base and especially in scoring position, you have to capitalize on that. 
There's just not margin for error at this point in the season. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the the one thing that I'll sort of note about this team is that while it has happened, you know, in these sort of isolated moments where the bats just go totally ice cold, um, that's the, you know, to the extent that we've seen a pattern, that's been the pattern, is that A, it, it's fairly isolated, and B, um, like there's no in between with this team. You know, they're, they're either hitting, you know, an absurd number of runs or that, you know, they aren't putting anybody on base, you know, like, you know, I, I, uh, you know, the, the getting guys home thing doesn't really bother me. As long as you're, you're, you're getting guys on base, then you're doing the right thing. And then it's just a matter of, you know, you know, the more guys you put on base, the more guys that you're, you know, putting into scoring position, the more guys you put into scoring position, the higher the odds of, you know, bringing them home. And, and like, unless that number really gets out of whack, you know, like unless they're stranding, you know, a ton of, uh, of folks like, uh, you know, you're going to wind up str- like, you know, what does it usually work out to that you get about, you know, h- half as many runs as you get hits? Like, as long as that's not totally out of whack, like, you know, it feels terrible to say like, oh, they, you know, they stranded all these dudes. But like, as long as it's within the norm, like that's, you know, fine. The question is getting guys on. And that was the thing that was just like, you know, so disturbing about that Arizona State performance. But the silver lining is they usually, you know, over the course of this season have have sort of been able to put that away um uh and and they go right i mean like we've been in this spot a couple of times you know this season where it's just like oh my god where did the ducks bats go is this gonna presage like the rest of the season where you know you know everything up until this point was a mirage and really the bats are ice cold from now on out and like that just hasn't been the case you know like they usually bounce back i mean hell the pac-12 tournament doesn't mean anything uh they were going to get wiped out by oregon state or stanford anyway maybe the maybe it was the plan all along they just wanted to go home and get an early rest uh get prepared for louisville what what do you think about that theory it could be and and it's you you see that sometimes you see it in uh in a lot um in basketball as well you you know you'll see a, a team have a great season and then in the conference tournament they'll purposely just kind of fizzle out because they're like, no, we, we, we just don't need this right now. You know, we've got our positioning and we need rest and we need to, you know, prepare for what's ahead. Um, I can see them doing that. Um, I can see them doing that to avoid a matchup with Oregon state or Stanford. Um, you know, that would, that would put them even further behind. So um, in, in, in a sense, you know, it's, it's okay. Um, it's, it's disappointing just from a strictly competitive standpoint, but from a strategic standpoint, it's definitely not something unheard of or something that you don't see across college athletics. Huh. I was kind of joking about that. But you took that seriously. That's interesting. Um, have you looked at all at uh, Michigan or Louisville? Any idea of what uh, Oregon's facing? Uh, we're we're going to have an article later in the week uh, previewing uh, the, the regional opponents, but I want to know if you've got uh, any take on them right now. Um, mostly for Michigan, um, what I've seen from them is that, uh, kind of like you said, they're, they're in the middle of, um, a little bit of a scandal right now. Um, I mean, you know, maybe not a full scandal, but something that's distracting them. Um, one thing that you can look at, uh, when you take a look at the, uh, the consistency of, of their winning percentage, because, you know, you, you look at their winning percentage and you think to yourself, well, you know, they're, they're, they're not super impressive. They have a, you know, a losing record on the road. 
they're 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 500 in conference. You know, overall they're just six games above 500. I think the one thing that you want to look at with them is uh, how how often that they've they've been on any sort of a streak. Because when you look at Oregon baseball, you can look at it as kind of like they've had a, a season of streaks. They'll have, you know, a lot of wins in a row, and then they'll compile a lot of losses in a row. And uh, that shows that at least you can find some consistency um, with, you know, getting hot and staying hot, which is, you know, obviously something you're hoping for heading into the NCAAs. Uh, with Michigan, I don't see quite as much of that as I do with Oregon. Uh, it looked like they did kind of have a little bit of a hot streak going, kind of somewhere around the midseason where they compiled some wins together, uh, put together a nice little streak. Uh, but then it kind of it fizzled out into a few more losses. And then um, other than that, one right in the middle of the season, I don't see any consistent winning streak from them that spans any more than like three games. And so I think that's one thing to look at is uh, how consistent is this team? How, how, how are they with being able to play at a high enough level that they can continue to put win after win after win after win together? And that's just not something I've seen a lot from Michigan. So it gives, it gives me confidence heading into that. Uh, yeah, they're, you know, it, it was funny because the game that everybody wound up watching, cause it was when one of their pitchers, um, got ejected for the game for having a foreign substance, uh, you know, uh, in his glove or something or his belt or something. Uh, you know, so everybody was like, you know, Michigan was the villain of the day. It was in a game in which they were beating Iowa, like 15 to one, you know, <laughs> like, so everybody looked up at the scoreboard was like, damn, maybe this Michigan team, you know, why were they cheating? They didn't need to cheat, but like, you know, look up their RPI. Like it's not great. I think they're 61, you know, an RPI in Iowa's, you know, only 60. Um, so like beating the snot out of them is you know not saying much oregon's at 28 uh in rpi they're not a half bad team at all they play in a very difficult conference um you know obviously they've you know the the pac-12 has you know two of the top three teams in the country in oregon state and stanford um you know i uh assuming that uh nominal oregon and nominal michigan show up i i sort of have that one penciled in as a win um but Louisville looks real tough to get past, you know, uh, Louisville's number 17 in RPI. They've got, you know, I think they've got the ACC is a brutal conference. I think they've got like eight teams in the top 20. Um, like, let me see if I can count them up. The, uh, North Carolina, Virginia tech, wake forest are all like top six teams. Um, uh, Notre Dame's a top 15 team. Miami's a top 15 team, Louisville 17. Like, yeah. Uh, Georgia Tech is 21. Like there, it Virginia's 24. Like it's the the ACC was a totally brutal conference this year. Um, and so you know, Louisville's uh, uh, conference record is not you know the highest in the world. But like Jesus, they they you know they were playing a real tough conference. Uh, and their RPI you know really demonstrates it. I I, I sort of see this going like. Oregon beats Michigan, loses to Louisville, loses to Louisville. Um, uh, you know, kind of like how softball looked like, you know, you know, beating Wichita State, losing to Arkansas, losing to Arkansas. Um, uh, what do you think about that take? Um, I think it's I think it's fairly accurate. Uh, I don't I don't given the uh, like I said, kind of like the uh, the struggles sometimes with the batting and then just the uh, the inconsistency in pitching and ability to close. I don't see them being able to take Louisville. And um, it's one of the things that's 
kind of disappointing about their, you know, performance in the, in the Pac-12 tournament, as you were just talking about is, you know, they had a chance to set themselves up with a, with a better position and better seating where they wouldn't have to face a team like Louisville so soon. Uh, but that's what happens. If you don't, if you don't show up for every game, then you're going to give yourself a, a position where you're going to be, you know, right in line with one of the, one of the better teams. And, um, yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, we should probably be able to get past Michigan. Like I said, I don't, don't see a lot of consistency from them. Their winning percentage isn't super high. Um, and then so I think we'll just kind of have to hang our hat, pardon the pun, on that for the year is that we were able to make the, the NCAAs. We were able to, you know, get a win out of it. Uh, but there's a lot of room for growth still and uh, a lot of ways to go before we can really be a true contender. Uh, I think that's probably true. Uh, the The bright side, though, is that, you know, the, just the, the, the game theory of baseball, if you're going to do one thing well in baseball and always have, you know, uh, a shot, it's putting guys on base, you know, like uh, of all the things to, to if you're going to max out one stat, you know, that's it. And Oregon's a very good batting team most of the time. All right, let's take a break. Uh, we come back. We'll talk a little golf and uh, track and field. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. So uh, the just to recap, uh, since we were recording in the middle of the Women's Golf National Championship game last week, uh, Slurms and I were, um, the outcome of that, uh, uh, it came down to match play. Oregon was ranked number two. Stanford was ranked number one. Uh, they were tied two matches to two with one uh, match left. Um, uh, Stanford's Rose Zhang, who I believe had won the uh the individual national championship uh, against sophie kibsgard nielsen um uh Zhang pulled it out uh by a couple of strokes plus there was a weird uh, uh scandal where uh sophie uh ran over Zhang's uh, uh ball on the uh, on the the course which was ruled a one-stroke penalty and that gave her plenty of cushion uh in order to close it out so stanford wins three to two but uh oregon was like this is a podcast and so you can't see my fingers. Imagine my fingers being a centimeter apart. They were this close. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, a, a pretty damn impressive import, uh, per- performance. And uh, I think that Oregon uh, women's golf is going to be back in the national championship scene uh, pretty quick. On the men's golf side, that just wrapped up. Um, it's a similar structure. Uh, they uh, made it in the field of 30. Uh, they, they had an impressive showing in, in, in the regionals. Uh, they had a big comeback uh, and managed to qualify for it. They made it through uh, the first uh, gate, the, you know, the round of 30 to the round of 15. Um, then they had to do uh, stroke play and they came in 
15th out of 15. Uh, <laughs> so they did not make it to match play, which requires making it to the top eight. But uh, number 15 in the country is n- not bad. Uh, Oregon men's golf uh, has won a national championship in the past under this uh, coaching staff, Casey Martin. Um, and again, I think that Oregon uh, men's golf is going to be um, back in the national stage, you know, sooner rather than later as well. I think this was a pretty good season. Um, who knew uh, Oregon was a golf school? Do you know that, Adam? <laughs> You know, I, I I never would have pegged them as such, uh, but yeah, given given the success that we've seen lately, um, yeah, let's, let's let's call it Golf Town, USA. Why not? Uh, well, I would have figured that this was a track school. Um, and indeed it is, uh, they, uh, won the PAC 12, uh, uh, uh both the men and the women, uh, that was, uh, hosted at Hayward field. Um, then they went to, uh, Fayetteville for the West, uh, uh, qualifier on which the ducks did very well, qualified a whole bunch of people for the NCAA, you know, uh, championships. That's going to be next week. I believe the, uh, what the eight, the, I believe the eight through 11th, um, uh, and where else, but, Hayward Field, um, uh, hell of a home field advantage, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, definitely. And um, you know, Hayward Field has always been kind of like the home of of, of some of the uh, championships and and preliminary qualifyings and all that stuff. Um, I think the remodel, <clears throat> although it was you know a little disappointing for some Duck fans to see, just because of, you know you're getting rid of such a historic venue, uh, has really helped uh, bring it into the limelight as kind of like the place to be. Um, you know, we, we call ourselves track town for a reason. And so we want to have a, a venue that lines up with that. And so hosting these big events, I think, will um, will definitely be a, a good uh, home field advantage for Oregon. But also uh, it, it, it gives the, um, the school a little more notoriety, too, because you get, you know, national coverage. And anytime you can get national coverage uh, from a little place like Eugene, it's always a plus. Uh, the men uh, qualified seven uh, individuals and then the, the four by 100 meter uh, relay um, uh, is Bannonfield in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters, uh, Elliot Cook in the 1,500 meters, uh, Ty Hampton, the javelin. Um, uh, Louis Peralta at 800 meters, uh, Max Vollmer, the decathlon, um, Manuel, uh, Himeji in, uh, the triple jump. Um, the, the, but the, you know, the, the star, uh, I thought of the show was Micah Williams, uh, who just had an absolutely scorching performance in the hundred meters. Uh, what'd you think about that? Yeah. Um, definitely was impressed, um, with Micah Williams time. Um, also want to give a shout out to Elliot Cook too, as well. You mentioned him. Uh, he turned in a, a lifetime best performance in the 1500 meters. Um, this, uh, this was definitely the best race I've seen him run. Uh, he finished with a time of 338.92. And uh, that was almost uh, two, full, two full seconds off his previous best. And um, yeah, seeing those kind of performances and getting guys like this into uh, the NCAA championships is obviously like, you know, a big push for the school and whatnot. Yeah. When it comes to the, uh, Micah Williams, uh, not only did he help the team in the four by 100 meter relays, um, but then getting that spot in the uh, 100 meter field at the uh, championships and, uh, finishing in, in under 10 seconds with that, with that 9.86. Yeah. He really was, uh, kind of the star of the show, 
And um, I think he's going to be uh, great in the championships. I think we have a, a real chance to bring home some more individual gold as well, uh, coming off the heels of that uh, team sweep with the men and the women. Uh, yeah, it should be, you know, interesting to watch. And, uh, and then on the other side, uh, the women did even better. They qualified, uh, uh, 14, uh, individuals, nine different events. Um, uh, Eamon Clark in the 200 meters, Jaden Mays in the, uh, and Kevin Melson in the hundred meters. Um, uh, Izzy Thornton bought in, uh, the 1500, um, in the uh, and uh, Jasmine Montgomery also in the hundred and uh, in the two hundred as well. Um, Alexander Webster in the uh, four hundred meter hurdles. Uh, Malia Pivik in the uh, three thousand meter steeplechase. Um, the other four by a hundred meter uh, relay uh, also qualified. That's uh, Jaden Mays, Kim Wilson, um, Jasmine Reed, Jasmine Montgomery. Um, uh, I have been putting up uh, on Addicted to Quack all these pictures of Jaden Mays and Kim Nelson. They just like they show up just looking incredible uh, in photos. Uh, it's just it's fantastic <laughs> for the site. Um, and, and then in the, the field events, uh, Jada Ross in the shot put and the discus uh, and Minnetta Clark in the shot put and uh, Lexi Ellis in the triple jump. Uh, very impressive performance. Um, uh, the, uh, I, I can't remember how this re- compares to previous performances, but, uh, you know, uh, this is the most that I can remember in, in, in recent memory. You know, this is a, a pretty incredible women's track and field team. I think they're going to go pretty far. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 14 qualifiers is, is something else. And um, yeah, I think the the women after, uh, you know, kind of like failing to take the uh, the, the Pac-12 uh, team championships up until this year for kind of like a five-year hiatus. Yeah, are, they are yielded it to USC. That was no good. Yeah, no, I definitely uh, like how the, the women are, are getting back on top again. Yeah, and um, uh, Montgomery, you, you mentioned, uh, she is uh, one of only two freshmen in the country uh, to advance right now. So that shows you we have some 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 young blood. And then um, I also wanted to point out uh, Iman Brown. Uh, she recorded um, a lifetime best performance. And then uh, she has moved up uh, the UO uh, all-time list up to uh, number eight. So qu- quick shout out to her. We got that... Uh, senior leadership and now she's a uh, stamping her place in the history books for U of O track. Uh, yeah, no, it was a pretty impressive performance. So, uh, the, the NCAA, uh, is coming back, uh, to Hayward field. Um, uh, you can get all the coverage that you can handle at addicted to quack. Uh, not like there's a whole lot of other sporting events going on, but track is king, um, especially this time of year. And uh, and it'll be Worlds uh, in July also at Hayward Field. Um, it is a historic and, and beautiful site. Uh, I encourage everybody to go uh, now that the weather's nice. Um, all right, uh, let's take a break. Uh, we come back, we'll talk a little football. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All 
All right, Adam. Uh, obviously, the spring practices have been uh, have wrapped up, but football never really goes to sleep. Uh, this is a pretty prime recruiting period right now. What can you tell us about uh, how the recruiting's going? Uh, well, I did a couple articles um, recently re- uh, related to the recruiting that's going on. Um, in the first article, I had uh, mentioned uh, new UO receivers coach Junior Adams um, and his effort uh, to to kind of fill the gaps in in the all the spots that opened up um, after you had the departure um, of so many of uh, UO's top playmakers in the receiver position. I think Adams is doing a great job of uh, filling up those holes and um, it kind of uh, plays into like the recruiting efforts of, of, of the coaching staff itself, because um, you know, when you had the previous coaching staff under Cristobal, it, it wasn't just him, you know, it was uh, the position coaches at well that were able to kind of like feel like friends and family to the recruits they visited. And so um, apparently junior Adams is, is, is one of the top in that field. And um it's kind of like uh, another another nice slap in the face to to old UW uh, because that's where we got him from. Uh, that's <laughs> so, true. Yeah, yeah. Never, you know, no. when the staff was hired, you know, everybody immediately conceded. Oh yeah, these guys can recruit real well, but can any of these guys coach? And then I went and wrote my series about like, can these guys coach? And uh, I wrote a longer than usual article about junior Adams because, well, number one, his career is really long. He's been a wide receivers coach and only a wide receivers coach. He's never coached any other positions. He's never been an offensive coordinator. He's apparently just all he wants to do is coach receivers. Um, but he's been all over. He was at uh, Boise state and uh, Western Kentucky. He was at Eastern Washington where he was Cooper cups coach. Um, he was, uh, you know, at Washington uh, for that period of time. Um, uh, and like, you know, everywhere he goes, uh, uh, you know, he coaches really well, you know, his wide receivers prefer, you know, the, you know, he sort of identify a couple different technique out of wide receivers, like how they protect the ball, um, you know, how they catch, uh, you know, uh, you know, what their catch radius is, you know, if the ball's not totally on their numbers, um, what their yards after contact is like, you know, how tough they go into contact. And like you watch in a film and you can like pick up these patterns and you're like, okay, that's coaching. When I see the same technique from multiple players across multiple schools over 20 years, like, okay, that's coaching, you know? And so I was sort of like, yeah, this guy can, can coach. And then I was sort of devoted some of the article to solving the mystery of why was Washington's wide receiver production so bad in 2019. And like, I probably wouldn't have spent that much time on it if it wasn't Washington, but like it was. And so I had to, cause you know, I'm writing for an Oregon site. Um, but you know, I solved that mystery. Go and read that article. Uh, uh, I feel, and, and, and frankly, you know, Washington's wide receivers was the best thing that was going for him in, in 2021. Like if you go back and read, you know, my, my, film study of, of Washington back when we had no idea that junior Adams was going to come to Oregon. And so like, I couldn't possibly be a Homer about this. Like I, if anything, I was, I'd have all, you know, if I were a Homer, I'd have all my incentives to like make fun of him. Right. But I wasn't making fun of him. I was repeatedly saying like Washington's wide receivers, are the best part of this team. That's how they got themselves back. And like the Arizona game was hitting the, you know, these deep passes and so forth. Like, you know, I, so anyway, the point of all the story has been like, I, I went on a long journey to demonstrate that, that uh, junior Adams is a good wide receiver coach but everybody just took for granted that he was a great recruiter right <laughs> and then yeah. you know this last month or so is just like yeah no you know no cap like <laughs> he really is man like he locked down a lot of pretty impressive talent yeah definitely 
And um, yeah, it definitely comes into play where you need coaches to kind of prove themselves on the recruiting trail and on the field. And then um, that, that, that leads to the next segment where we're talking about defense because, you know, our new head coach, Dan Lanning, his, his forte is defense. Uh, we just saw what his defense did to, you know, Nick Saban's Alabama team. Um, so we, we know that he's already got some good coaching chops, even at a young age. Um, the question was, you know, how well was he going to be able to recruit as the head coach? Uh, was he going to be able to help bring in the kind of defensive players we need? Um, well, it looks like that Oregon has just now jumped uh, into the top 20, and they're sitting just outside the top 15 for the 2023 recruiting classes. And uh, one of the reasons for that was they just uh, had another uh, good commitment from a uh, four-star defensive back, uh, Cody DeCombra. Um, he was in line uh, for Oregon mostly, but he had offers from Oregon State and Washington, which, again, I love to bring up because of the fact that, you know, we got him and they didn't. Um, the kid looks well, pretty well, sturdy. That kid must have been from Portland, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, he looks pretty sturdy, too. Um, as a senior in high school, he's already 6 feet, 175 pounds. Uh, that's, that's a good size for a defensive back. And um, odds are he'll, he'll grow a little more, get a little heavier. And... Um, the nice thing is, is he's very fast and very athletic. Um, I put in my article that he um, he posted a uh, 4.53 in the 40, and he has a 39.8 inch vertical leap. So that's that that's a good catch. Uh, pardon the pun again for uh, the defense. And then moving forward from that, uh, like I said, we're kind of sitting just outside the top 15 as far as the 2023 class goes. Uh, this. Um, Next haul that we're going to have in, so um, keep your eyes peeled for the weekend of June 24th. Uh, that's apparently going to be just kind of like a recruiting palooza weekend for Oregon. Um, they have lots of talent coming in uh, from, from various different positions, four and five star uh, recruits. We have uh, running back Richard Young, offensive tackle Caden Proctor, defensive end Jaden Wayne, defensive lineman David Hicks, and uh, we just found out this weekend uh, that another young man that will be making his way to Eugene once again is a five-star defensive end, uh, Matteo Ugalele, and um, he is scheduled to have his first, quote, official visit uh, during the weekend of the 24th, uh, but he's actually been to Eugene several times already, which um, obviously shows his interest obviously shows his, his comfort level with the coaching staff. Um, he does have official visits still to, you know, uh, general uh, ones that steal all the five stars, you know, USC, Ohio State, Alabama. Uh, but I think one thing, like I mentioned before, to look for is that the fact that he's already been to Eugene multiple times. Uh, but this would be a huge, huge get for Oregon if they can land this kid. He is the uh, number one defensive end and number five player overall in the class of 2023. The thing that impresses me, I mean, you're right about that, that uh, weekend of the 24th, like it's an incredible amount of talent um, is that like 
unlike a lot of schools uh, that recruit well, real well. And then you, you know, drill down and you're like, this is all skill. This is all like wide receivers and defensive backs. You know, the, the, the stuff that the West coast is just crawling with four-star talent and like, yeah, you know, you need those guys. You want to make a national championship run. Good luck doing it without, you know, blue chips, wide receiver and cornerback. But like the other thing that you need, you know, to have, well, you need to have a complete team. And the, the hard thing to do on the West coast is the guys in the trenches. And, and that's where, you know, that that's what really impresses me about this. You know, like, you know, Caden Proctor, Miles McVay, Terrence Green, all offensive linemen, right? Jaden Wayne, uh, Uyangalele, as you mentioned, uh, 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 Mikhail Gardner, Blake Purchase, um, you know, defensive linemen, Blake Nicholson, uh, uh, Kana. Um, there's, you know, other uh, you know, Blake Nicholson, the linebacker, Riley Williams is a tight end, you know, like, like it is almost exclusively, you know, the, the, the uglies, you know, right. Like offensive linemen, defensive linemen, tight ends, linebackers, the guys doing blocking and tackling the dirty work, um, you know, kind of guys. Um, and it was one of the things, you know, Storms and I were joking around about at the end of last uh, podcast is like, you know, it's, it's funny to read other fan bases commentary about Oregon because like, you know, it's so upside down, like, you know, every fan base in the world, you know, portrays Oregon as this, you know, glitzy, high flying, uh, you know, flashy program. And like, no, nah, man, the reason why it's successful is because they do real well in the trenches and they are recruiting real well in the trenches and they are bringing in disproportionately high number of dudes, you know, in the trenches for this big recruiting weekend on the 24th. Um, you know, obviously they're not going to get all of them. Like, I, I hope we're not getting everybody's, high, you know, hopes too high uh but like you know y- you ain't gonna get you know anybody if you don't get them on campus right like you, you know is sort of again like the law of averages like you you get enough dudes interested you're gonna come away with a substantial fraction of them and, the, and and if you know and if most of those dudes are are the the guys doing the dirty work then like you're gonna look pretty good in the trenches you know it's just hard you know it's hard to avoid that conclusion right yeah, absolutely. And um, I do think it's been it's been nice to see in recent years, um, Oregon kind of like moving more towards that kind of like, uh, you know, three yards and a cloud of dust uh, kind of, you know, trench battle thing. Um, I think in the, uh, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, there was, you know, kind of a, a level of excitement around the program that we'd never seen before. And, and all of that was based on kind of what you said, like the glitz, the flash, like, you know, how are you going to stop Oregon? They put up, you know, 50 something points a game easy, like, you know, their offense is a blur. And, um, you know, we, we got close for sure. But then, you know, rewind and look at the uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to revisit it. But the 2014 National Championship game, you know, that was probably yeah. the, the most loaded team we've ever had as far as skill position players goes. Um, but Ohio state just said, Hey, you know, we're going to take skill position out of it and we're just going to run the ball down your throats and push you all over the field. Yeah. Just, in you know, particular, like, ball. like linebacker defensive line, you know, like, you know, the, 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 the sexy stuff for defensive line Oregon had for a long time, but in terms of just like the beef to stand and take it, you know, in the middle to stop methodical runs, like, nah, they just didn't have it. And, you know, that was the problem. Every time they get to the Heights, you know, they, you know, unless Oregon could get a knockout blow, you know, with the chip Kelly stuff, um, and, and then put the, the opponent on their heels where they start making mistakes. Cause that's the flip side of the, the equation is, you know, Nick Aliotti's defense, where it's like, once you start getting in desperation mode, 
start making mistakes. They can be real opportunistic. But if you're talking about a toe to toe slug match, like, nah, that, that team wasn't built to do that because the recruiting wasn't there. And so like, I think everybody who had like a long-term view of what Oregon is building itself to knew that, you know, the Mario Cristobal phase was the next phase of what Oregon football would have to go through in order to mm-hmm. take the next step. And I, you know, I'm invoking a name I know, which a lot of Duck fans are still in their feelings about, but like you all knew that that had to happen, didn't you? Like, you know, was that the guy who's going to win you in Natty? Uh, who knows? You know, we'll, we'll never know at that point, at this point, it's not like he's going to ever come back to Oregon. Um, but like you had to do this, uh, you know, and Dan Lanning seems to, you know, maybe be the perfect guy to pick up that gauntlet um, to, to take the next step because like, yeah, this, this is where, you know, the game's won in the trenches and the game is run with recruiting. And so therefore put two and two together, you've got to recruit well in the trenches. And I mean, I look around at a lot of teams in the conference um, where it's like, they don't seem to have learned that lesson, you know, like they're like, well, oh man, we can finish with the top 10 class. If all we do is recruit wide receivers and, and cornerbacks. So uh, yeah, let's do that. That'll impress everybody. Uh <laughs> So speaking yeah. of uh, uh, one such team that has totally fallen apart in the trenches, the article that I published this week was about Stanford. Um, boy, oh boy, Adam. But like it, it was it was crazy to review their roster, like just how total of a collapse it is um, on both the offense and the defense. Um, I, I don't suppose you read my article on Stanford, did you? Um, yeah, I, I, I did. And okay. um, yeah. Honestly, um, I, I think you're right. It's 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 just like I said. I've I, I haven't seen an overhaul like that in quite some time. Uh, but honestly, I'll go ahead and take it. Given our recent history against Stanford, uh, Stanford football, for whatever reason, has been a perpetual thorn in Oregon side for the last decade or so yeah i know i mean it's like they were they were two and like in 2018 and in 2021 they were not that wasn't a good team and yet they still beat oregon on Mm -hmm. some pretty crazy stuff right and like man i you know it's probably just coincidence you know we're probably like david shaw wiley fox like never count him out uh if you start self-destructing he'll definitely be there to take advantage but just like you know, the, the crazy thing to me is, is like, you know, we were just saying about how Oregon was built, you know, to have all the skill players and, and, and good quarterback play and, and, and some decent cornerbacks, but sort of that's it. Um, and, and the good teams that are built well in the trenches will take advantage of you. It's crazy because that's like Oregon 2010 is what Stanford looks like right now. Um, but but Stanford's worse. Like Stanford, all of their skill is in their quarterback and they've got a good wide receiver core and they've got a really good cornerback and like everything in the middle of the field, you know, the defensive line, the linebackers, the offensive line is just, I mean, it's a dumpster fire. Like, and I mean, it's crazy to, you know, to the extent where they've like, they've just, they, they've changed their defensive system on paper, uh, to, they're calling it a four three, you know, it's not, it's a two, four, five. And they have to do that because they have, I'm not joking about this three scholarship defensive linemen who have a combined lifetime, three tackles between them. Yeah. Um, like it's like, like in 2020, there were, I, the, the, 
because of the COVID protocols, you know, one of the reasons why you might have to forfeit a game was that you didn't have enough defensive linemen to play. Like you, you need to have X number of people who are qualified to play defensive linemen. Otherwise football doesn't work. Like you can't sub in and have like, well, we'll have linebackers play defensive linemen. Like people will get killed. Like the, you know, it's simply not safe to play a football game if you don't have an adequate number of defensive linemen. Stanford might need to forfeit some games in 2022 because they don't have an adequate number of defensive linemen and not for COVID reasons. Like, yeah, it's yeah. like, it is, I, I don't, it blows my mind um, that they're, that they're in this situation with their defensive. They have three scholarship defensive linemen, Adam, like three, like, uh, uh, and they're three stars. Like they lost all their four stars. Um, and, and, you know, they're probably going to have to play walk-ons pretty substantially. Um, like, they're not going to be able to stop the run at all. Like, I mean, it's no. crazy. No. And I think the rest, the recipe against Stanford at this point is simple. Run it down their throats. They, they're yeah. not stopping it. And, and their linebackers, their outside linebackers might actually not be bad. But, like, you know, kind, you know, just who cares? Running up the middle, the outside linebackers are going to have anything to say yeah. about that. Their inside linebackers... Uh, stink they stunk last year they stunk for five years um like they're uh, you know it's crazy and and you're right you know they're just people are just gonna run on them all day long um and then the the other weird thing is the offensive line it's they've got lots of dudes they didn't lose a single dude they're all highly rated like stanford has the the best you know net talent or average talent rating um for the offensive line unit uh compared to anybody else in the pac-12 and yet their performance was on the floor of all of FBS in like every stat in on my tally sheet. Um, like it was just crazy. Like how, uh, you know, I, I, and I don't really think they're busts either. Like you would have to be exceptionally bad luck to, to recruit that well. And then for them all to be busts, like that one comes down to, to coaching and like Stanford doesn't, I mean, their offensive line coaching has been terrible. Um, and, uh, uh, I mean, it's like, would you have believed that if I said that to you about Stanford 10 years ago? Oh, like, absolutely not. Yeah, that was that, that was their bread and butter was winning yeah. in the trenches. And, that, and that's, you know, kind of like um, along with, like I said, the debacle against Ohio State. I think they were one of the reasons that Oregon decided they had to start changing course and being like, OK, we got to start playing more bully ball because we're getting yeah. pushed around by some of these teams. No, it's absolutely crazy. You know, every team that recruits poorly. Uh, you know, you can find their fans on Twitter chirping about how like, oh, it doesn't matter that all we got was a bunch of two and three stars. We developed so much better than you guys do. And I don't care that you recruited a bunch of four stars like you can't develop it. Also, we'll win. And like, we all know how that goes. Um, But they're not exactly wrong. Like in the sense that like your coaching still matters. You don't get to just get four stars and then, you know, hit the golf course. Your job is done. You know, you have to actually develop them. And if you want a poster child for that, look at Stanford's offensive line talent rating versus performance. Like I'm not joking about this in more than a decade of charting teams um, and not just the Pac-12, you know, all over the country. I have never, never in my career seen a a discrepancy that bad uh, between recruiting ranking and performance for any unit on any football team in any year. Like it is absolutely insane um, that this has happened. Um, And it didn't just come out of nowhere, you know, in 2021, it's been the case since 2018. Um, Like I've never seen anything like it. It, It's crazy. Um, 
And like, you know, let this be a lesson to, you know, everybody like invest in your offensive line coach. Like I, I know it's not, um, it's not a sexy position. Nobody notices it. Uh, um, but I, I'm telling you from reviewing film, like a, a poor offensive line developer, um, will really hurt you. Um, and, and, uh, and not being able to like guarantee consistent offensive line technique, like there's no better way to squander talent, uh, than that. Um, and here's the other lesson that I've learned. Oh man, I, I said this on previous podcasts, but every day I get more evidence of this. You do not fix offensive line problems through the transfer portal. Um, no. Just about every other position, you can parachute in a dude. You can parachute in a running back and a linebacker and and cornerbacks and and, and wide receivers, and it, it's all fine. You can even, to some extent, do the defensive line. Um, in, in fact, arguably with the defensive line, defensive the defensive line is sort of a position kind of like quarterback where, where the scheme and the structure of the, um, of the side of the ball that you play on is actually pretty relevant to you. So like you could be a dude who fits in a three down scheme, but you signed up for a four down team and it's like, I need to get out of here and go somewhere where my body type, you know, is a better fit for. And then they do real well there. So like, um, uh, just, uh, one example off the top of my head, um, um, Marquez Bimage, who was, um, an outside linebacker for Texas when they, when they fired, he, he was developed by Todd Orlando when he was their defensive coordinator at Texas. Um, when he got fired, uh, they switched back to a four and so he didn't fit and he was like, I want to go to a place that's a three. Um, he found Cal and instantly came in and was like their best offensive, excuse me, outside linebacker in years at Cal. Um, he like he immediately eclipsed everybody because it was the correct, you know, scheme fit for his body. Um, so that happens on, uh, that's the sort of the, the one position and the other one is quarterback. Um, you see it all the time where a transfer quarterback like parachutes in and like, he just, I don't know what it is, frankly, like, I, I wasn't a college quarterback, so I can't tell you exactly, but like, so, you know, they just like, they didn't get along with the previous staff or something. And, but like they click with the new staff and they light it up. Yeah. I mean, we've seen multiple national championships won over the last several years by transfer quarterbacks. Right. Oh like, yeah. And even, even, even in our own conference, you know, when you, you look back on guys like uh, Vernon Adams Jr. and Garner Bishu, mm -hmm. you know, who just w came in taking over for 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 you know like legendary guys in their programs, and and then uh, the teams didn't miss a beat. Yeah, I mean, it does. Ha I mean, you can't guarantee that it's going to happen. Like, you can't say, "Oh, you were a four star and you underperformed at your last school, and you transferred to a new school, so therefore you're going to overperform." Like that, you you can't make that guarantee. But it is the one position, well, two position, the other one being defensive line, as I just finished rambling about. Uh, the the one position where you can you know where you sort of like throw out the record books for for a transfer is quarterback so like uh, the obvious import to this for Oregon fans is Bo Nix um, who's averaging like a, a 120 NCAA passer rating which is it's it's on it, it is within the bell curve it's one standard deviation but on the lower side um, it's not like grossly low where you're like oh my god this is terrible but it's like it's 
you know, you would want that to be more like 140. Um, if you're talking about a dude who can lead you to championships, but like, man, I don't know. I was watching a lot of Auburn tape. Um, you know, obviously Oregon played him in 2019. Um, and then for other projects, I've wound up having to watch Auburn. Like for example, they play Georgia every year. I've been doing some Georgia film study, you know, and, and a few other teams where I wound up watching Auburn, um, quite a bit. That team had no, uh, offensive line and no wide receivers. Like it was bizarre how much, like I, I've got a, a good friend of mine goes or was an Auburn student. And I ribbed this person all the time about like, why doesn't this team have offensive linemen or wide receivers? It's a daily joke that I'm making about this team or weekly, whenever we, you know, we watch on Saturdays, uh, you know, Bo Nix, I, I, again, I cannot guarantee that this is going to happen, but the, the, uh, factors that, uh, have been present for other transfer quarterbacks who go from not performing up to their recruiting rankings at school A and then transfer to school B. And you look at the factors like more quarterback friendly offense, better offensive line protection, better wide receivers, um, you know, scheme change that may be more in line with their abilities. Like all of those factors are present for Nick's transferring to Oregon. So again, please don't uh, read this as a guarantee, but we've seen this sort of thing work out before plenty of times, not just like once or twice, plenty of times, um, to the extent that anybody who says like, Oh, we know who Bo Nix is, uh, you know, like, no, you don't, you don't know Bo. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, the position that you did not hear me mention as, Oh, you can fix this through the portal is the offensive line. And I mean, you know, in this interview series that we're doing and like, you can find it on Twitter all over the place. You can find it in, in podcasts, uh, that are not, me, uh, you know, you will find every fan is saying like, yeah, there's kind of an offensive line problem, but they're hoping to fix it in the transfer portal. No, you're not like, or that's not a realistic hope. Like, like name one, like I, the, the, c- come at me, you know, like name and effective offensive line transfer. Like, yeah. They, 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 I mean, there's actually, I could name them if anybody was really curious, but like you can't, no, of course. you don't, you need one hand to count them. Um, and no, it, I mean, it, and it comes into just because there is no more importance of cohesion possibly in, in anywhere in any sport than an offensive line in football. Um, the cohesion and the chemistry uh, that that has to be a unit. They have to be. It is not something where you can mix and match and plug different players in. Uh, you see it all the time. You saw it in, in the 2019 Rose Bowl team for Oregon. That was a group that had been together for four straight years. They knew each other. They had that cohesion. You know, you saw it with the offensive line that helped protect Marcus Mariota in his last year. Same thing. Group of upperclassmen, cohesion, familiarity, it is, it is not something where you can just mix and match and plug guys in. Uh, yeah. And like to the extent that there are any dudes who are good enough to play for you, uh, want to play for you and have the uh, magical ability to like just jump right in and develop that cohesion with their teammates right away. Like that dude's a unicorn, man. Like there's not enough of those guys to go around. There's maybe one of them. Like there's not the 30 of them that, you know, every single podcast, you know, every single podcast, you've got a kid or, you know, a a team talking about getting a kid out of the portal uh, to play in their offensive line. There's not enough of them 
guys, you know, somebody's going to get one and, and, you know, that'll be the exception that proves the rule, but like all, all these teams, you know, so the, my point being, you can sort of, the portal means you can sort of screw up your roster balance at every other position and you can fix it through the portal. Like, you know, USC is doing a lot of fixing through the portal right now. The exception is offensive line. You know, yep. if there's one position, like if your team needs to be burned to the studs and there's one position that you're salvaging and moving on with, uh, make it your offensive line. You know how I know that? It's because what happened in 2016 at Oregon, right? Yep. Like that 2016 Oregon team need to be burned to the ground. But you know what the last gift of Mark Helfrich was? It was Calvin Throckmorton. Uh, you know, and the rest of that, you know, offensive line group, uh, that, that mm-hmm. got, you know, Mario Cristobal through the Rose bowl, um, yep. like, you, you know, and, and so for all, you know, all these other, you know, teams that sort of want, you know, that I'm, I keep interviewing that are like, yeah, we're going to have a quick resurgence. Would you fix your offensive line? Oh no. Um, uh, but it'll be fine. And I'm like, it's, it's not, it's not going to be fine. <laughs> no, absolutely yeah. not. All right. I think that's going to do it for us this week, or we'll wrap it up here. Adam, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, what are you looking forward to uh, for next week? Uh, definitely looking forward to the track and field championships. Um, I think that should be a lot of fun. Um, I think that uh, hosting them at Hayward Field um, is definitely going to be a big thing. Um, like I said, uh, have have a little bit of excitement about Oregon's uh, first round uh, matchup in the regionals baseball-wise. Uh, beyond that, don't have a whole lot of hope. Um, as we move through the summer, uh, like I said, we're just uh, going to keep breaking down uh, some film and, and breaking down recruiting um, over football, and it'll be here before you know it. Uh, so, yeah, it should be a good time. All right. Sounds good. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.